As we look at John chapter 6, we have it's a great message. Beginning with the miracle of providing the bread to those who had gathered on the side of the mountain. That's really where the message begins. It's illustrated in a sense. Jesus provides for those who do not have bread. He gives them bread. He gives them fish. He then withdraws from the crowd, but the crowd pursues Him. Even across the sea, it says. And their desire was to have more bread, more fish. They wanted the blessings that Jesus was offering. Jesus really was a miracle worker. I mean, I don't know if we comprehend that very well. That in His day, the Bible says as He walked through villages, He was healing many. He was touching, He was speaking, and He was healing many. We often get caught up on just a few that are mentioned in specific cases, but yet John tells us so many things were done by Christ that they couldn't be contained if you filled the world with books. It was literally a heaven on earth. When Jesus said the kingdom had come, that's what He meant. The kingdom had come. And they were beginning to experience the fruit of it, and they liked it. Who wouldn't like the fact that a man could pray and bless some bread and fish and feed maybe 12, 15,000 people and have 12 baskets left over? Who wouldn't enjoy that? It's like the perfect welfare state. And so they follow Him across the ocean looking for this great society. And when they get there, Jesus says, You're laboring for food which perishes. And I tell you, labor for the food, the bread that never ends. My flesh is the bread from heaven. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live for eternity. Jesus says, you're looking for utopia and I'm offering you the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't come through the physical bread which you put in your mouth and consume and digest The physical bread cannot offer you eternal life. You'll be like the fathers in the desert in Exodus. You will die. You will surely die like they did. But if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you will live. Don't look for utopia on the earth. Don't look for the welfare state that can be offered in this life. Look for the eternal kingdom that never passes away. That's Jesus' point. And the only way you can have that is if the Father draws you to me. All that the Father draws me will come to me. And if you come to me, I will never cast you out. And on the last day, I will raise you up. This is a tremendous message we've been looking at. Powerful. It's also a message that demands a response. And today we look at the response. It's a message that demands a response. It demands a response From me, it demands a response from you. It demands a response from everyone in the world. And the response must be to the... This is the message, and then we'll talk about the response. The message is, Jesus Christ is eternal life. Anyone who will have eternal life must have Christ. You get it? That's the message, and it demands a response. You've already responded to this point. Either you've responded by the faith granted to you and you believe in Christ, or you right now are in disbelief of this message. And in that, you're responding. But everyone responds. 
The gospel demands a response. When it's presented, it divides. It's divisive, this message that we preach. And we see that in our text. It's divisive. It demands a response. And so what is the response? The gospel doctrines divide true believers from false believers. The gospel doctrines presented in Jesus Christ's message, which we're going to look at, I think there's at least four doctrines that He presents in this text that divide true believers from false believers. So, there's two categories of people in this room. There are true believers, and then there are those who are false believers or non-believers. That you're really in one category, okay? You either are with Christ or you're against Christ. That's... That's the only two camps that exist in the world. Saved and lost. Believer and non-believer. And so the message demands a response. And the doctrines that are being presented, the truth, the teachings, don't get confused over the word doctrine. The teaching, that's what it means. The teaching of the gospel divides the world. Divides the world. It's the great divide. Like the continental divide. All on one side go to the Atlantic, all on the other side, go to the Pacific. Okay? You must respond to these doctrines. What are these doctrines that Jesus presents here that are so divisive? Let me quickly go through them with you so that you can decide, so that you can know in your heart, am I with Christ or against Him? He first says, the first doctrine we see is the doctrine of the incarnation. It is a divisive doctrine. Even down to our day is divisive. Look back in John 6, verse 33. Jesus says in verse 33, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven, Jesus says. This is Him in reference to His coming down from heaven into the flesh. John chapter 1 says, The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 14 it says, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, the incarnation. The Word became flesh. The fact that it came down from heaven means it existed before it was born in that manger in Bethlehem. The Word existed. This Spirit, this person, Christ, existed before He was born of a virgin. That's divisive. You might not think of it that way because growing up in a traditional Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist background a more conservative Bible Belt church, you probably have not faced the division that has been voiced over this. But it's very divisive. Don't make any, don't make any bones about it. I don't want to make any bones about it. It is very divisive. Verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven. See, He's emphasizing, I've come down from heaven. I wasn't born of Mary and Joseph. That's not where I began to exist. I came down from heaven. Okay, I came down from heaven, he says. Verse 38. Look, at verse, uh, look again at verse 51, where again he emphasizes, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So he's making the point that I existed in eternity past, and then I came into existence in the earth in the flesh. It's a controversial teaching. We know that it's controversial because of the response of the Jews when they first heard the message. They're, they're upset about this saying. 
Look in verses 41 and 42. Jesus says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? The first Aryans, right here, the Jews. See, there's no new cult or false belief in the world. There's no new. It's, it's been here since the beginning. This controversy raged in the third century after Christ's death in the ancient church. And the church was divided in some ways, but not really equally as some might want you to believe. There were two great church leaders in A.D. 311 who came to head over this issue of Christ, whether He was divine or human, or both. Okay? And so, you had Arian, who was a priest in the Catholic Church, who held the position that Christ, Jesus, was a man. Not divine, human. He was a good man. He was a moral man. He was in some ways... Uh, the example to all mankind. And He died because we are wicked and he is, whole, he, is, he is good. But He was not God in the flesh. That's Arian's position, known as Arianism. And then you have on the other side of the issue, Athanasius, one of the church fathers from Alexandria. He became bishop of that city. And he would carry... At the, the, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Orthodox position, which is that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. He is God in the flesh. He is 100% God and 100% man. It makes no sense to the common mind or the human mind, but it is the truth. And the church backed Him almost 100%. Two men were in the dissension at the end. Arian and one other. All of the other of the council. Close to 400 leaders of the church said, Jesus Christ is divine, fully divine, and fully human. But this doctrine is divisive. And that Arian-led uh, cult did not die. It continues even in our day. In a couple of forms. The Unitarians, many of them believe that Christ was nothing but a moral man, that God is unified in His being. He is not in three persons. And therefore, they reject the deity of Christ. They believe Jesus, again, is a prophet, a priest, a king in some way, but not divine. More popular or more widespread, I guess, across the United States and the world is the Jehovah Witness. These are the Arians. These are the descendants of that uh, that division which came from the Council of Nicaea. It continues to our day. It is divisive. And even in the Orthodox Church, people struggle really with this issue. They might not, some of you may struggle with it. I have struggled with how can Jesus be both God and man, fully God and fully man. It's a divisive issue. It's hard to accept. The Jews struggled to understand but let me say this, without this doctrine, there is no gospel. If Christ is not both God and man, He cannot be a sacrifice for our sins. If He's fully God and not man, 
then we have no representative before the Father. And if He is simply a man, He has no right. He has no right to enter, even in His perfection, on our behalf before the judge of heaven, God the Father. It can't work any other way. He must be 100% God and 100% man. It's divisive, this doctrine. There's another doctrine that he presents here, the doctrine of the cross. And the doctrine of the cross is very divisive. If you look at verse 51, he said, the Jews say, or excuse me, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That reference at the end is a, is a reference to the cross. And, the, and, the, and the, the life, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is a reference to him offering himself as a sacrifice for those who would believe. I'm offering my flesh. How did he offer it? John 3.15 says he was lifted up so that all men might see him at once. He was lifted up on the cross. He was lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness so that anyone who turned their eyes to Him in belief and faith would be saved, would be healed from their sin. Jesus had promised that He would be a sacrifice, an offering on our behalf. And in fact, He was and is that sacrifice even to this day. He stands for us. And this teaching is not new in Christ. Christ isn't the first one to say it. It was said in Isaiah 53. The Old Testament has passages which point to the crucifixion of Christ. There's one even before that Aaron's been teaching, Genesis 22, which is a direct pointer to the cross. When God's, the angel says, God will provide for Himself a sacrifice on the mountain, that's a clear indication that there is an offering to come, which is not Isaac. And that offering is Christ. So the Old Testament is not silent on the issue of the suffering of the Messiah. But the Jews reject it. They reject that suffering. Isaiah 53 is a clear passage that teaches that the servant would suffer. The servant of God would suffer under the hand of God. It's a divisive teaching to say that he suffered. If we look in 1 Corinthians, the promise is given to us by Paul that this would be a divisive issue. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly. Do you see that? The word of the cross is folly. It's foolish. It's so far beyond the element of reason for the human mind to c- contemplate that God would come in the flesh and die for our sins. None of us would have come up with this idea. None of us, it just, none of us would have said this is the way we will redeem lost man. We'll go in human flesh and we'll die so that they might live. It's folly, it's foolish. When you preach the gospel to an unconverted man, in his heart he thinks this is silly. This makes no sense. Some of you even as I speak today, this morning are saying this is silly. This is child's nursery rhymes. It makes no sense. You mean you want me to base my entire existence in eternity on this, this story? This fable? This silly child's rhyme? That's what you want me to base my future on? 
is that God came in the flesh and died and suffered. How can God die? How can He suffer on our behalf? How can the creature cause such pain to the Creator? Well, when we look at this passage, we find the doctrine, first of all, of the Incarnation as a a divider among us. And the cross is no different. In liberal theology, don't, don't misunderstand that. That's not a political term. In the liberal theology that was so rampant in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 60s and 70s, many preachers in our pulpits today teach liberal theology because that's what they were trained in in the seminary. So it's very common, maybe more common than you think. Christ is held out as a moral example of how you should live. The standard that you should be striving towards excellence to look like Him. And when He died, He was showing you, in their way of thinking, simply what happens to those who live this way. You're persecuted and you're killed. But they don't see it as redeeming anyone. The cross, in their mind, is folly. It makes no sense. In the world's mind, it's folly. It makes no sense. But Christ presents it clearly in this, in this passage, in this message. These two great dividing doctrines. He also presents the third doctrine, the doctrine of sovereign grace. And it is divisive. Look in verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then again he says, if you look down in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here he speaks of the sovereignty of God in salvation. In other words, You may hear me physically, but you cannot come to me, Jesus is saying, unless my Father enables you to come. Unless He grants that you come. Unless He calls you. Unless He draws you. Unless He even pulls you. You will not come. It's a divisive teaching. But Jesus presents it. And it's been presented through the ages in the same form, and it's faced much division. Paul presented this same message. If we look at Paul and Peter and James and John, we find the clear teaching that God is sovereign in salvation. The New Testament speaks without question that God is sovereign in salvation. That teaching was picked up by Augustine John Huss, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Bunyan, John Owen, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, James Boyce, Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.C. Sproul in our day, John MacArthur, John Piper, and many others. And all of these men face persecution and rejection because they teach that God sovereignly saves Jesus was right when He said, if they persecute the master of the house, what then will they do to the servant who comes in His name? You see, the gospel is a dividing truth. 
It's not easy to accept. It seems to be folly to the mind of the lost man. It presents the opportunity to disagree and to walk away. The gospel forces you to make a decision. Are you for Christ or are you against Christ? It's the way Jesus presented it in this text for us to read and to understand and to study. So He teaches us these doctrines. He says they're dividing. And, and so it shouldn't shock us, should it? I don't know, I, I chuckle inwardly when people say, uh, Christ unites, doctrine divides, and all those kind of things. That, that's just not true. Christ divides. Because His doctrine is divisive. Compromising the truth of the gospel is not an option for the true believer. He's left to stand in conscience, bound by the Scripture. He's left to stand for Christ. And if he steps away from that, then he finds, may find pleasure with man, but displeasure with his Father. So we can't compromise simply because it doesn't draw the crowd. But what's happening in our day? What's happening in our day is a compromise. And it's being championed as Christian unity. Statements like, the tent's big enough for all of us. Why can't we all just get along? These statements, though they sound good and they sound peaceful and they sound loving, are really poison in the well. Understand, there are things we can see difference of opinion on that are not required for salvation and we can disagree over those things and we will disagree over them. But in these core truths, the divinity of Christ, the plan of redemption, God's salvation, in the cross, we don't find room for compromise in these issues. We must accept them and teach them the way they're taught in Scripture. There are other issues which are not this pivotal. Things that we should be charitable over. The end times is a perfect example of that. You know, great men sit around tables and discuss this issue and don't part fellowship over it. One believes he's right. The other believes he's right. They're not afraid to tell you they're right. But yet, they're different. They disagree. The mode of baptism. Who should be baptized? These questions are questions which allow for us to compromise, or not to compromise, but to discuss. And to even arrive at different answers. And yet still love and fellowship with one another. Those are not divisive issues. But look at, if you just look, just step back and look at the church today. Those are the issues we're divided over. We've turned the truth on its head. We've made it foolish. We divide over a man's eschatology, his end times view. We divide over whether he baptizes believers or infants. We divide over whether he has only male deacons or female and male deacons. We divide over all of these issues that are never spoken of as divisive in the Scripture. 
And yet over the main issues of the gospel, we want to make the tent big enough for everybody. It's, does that not strike you as unbelievable, really? That that's where the church has come. That instead of unifying over Christ and over His gospel, we divide over these simple issues that we may never... I'll be honest with you. Some of you know from talking with me. I'm, I'm, I'm very lenient on issues, that some of them that I've mentioned. And we, there, we, if, 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 we, if you took time and you asked me questions, I'm sure I would offend almost everybody in here at some point on some of these issues, or all of them. But you're all here. Why? I pray that the reason you're here, if you're a member of this church, is because the one issue is right. It's presented biblically. And so though we may disagree over these other issues, this issue, the one that eternity hangs on, we agree over. The gospel. The gospel is a divider. You must make a decision. The gospel cannot be compromised even though it brings this division. We see this in Jesus' response. If you look in now in verse 60, when many of His disciples heard it, heard it, the teaching, the doctrine, they said, this is a hard saying. The word here translated hard really could be translated difficult, could be explained by saying hard to accept. The problem's not understanding. The problem is accepting. You ever heard somebody say, well, that preacher, man, when he preaches, it's just hard. It's, I, just, I just struggle to understand what he's talking about. But then when you start talking about the message, when they say, yeah, I understand it. I understand that. I understand it. It's just hard to understand. And you, you, know, you kind of turn your head like, what are you talking about? You just said it's not hard to understand. What they're really expressing to you is it's hard to accept what he's saying is true. It's not hard to understand. The gospel's very simple. We are sinners. By nature, we are sinful and deserve God's wrath. God is holy and cannot forgive our sin based on our merit or our earning salvation. So therefore, He sent Himself, His Son, into the perfect flesh, Jesus Christ, and He lived a perfect and sinless and righteous life. And then He died on the cross, was buried and raised up on the third day. And everyone who believes in Him, lays hold to Him, puts His anchor in Him, will be saved. Is that hard to understand? It's simple, isn't it? It's hard to accept. That's the problem. You share the gospel today with anyone with an IQ over 40 or 50. They're going to understand it. They just may not accept it. It doesn't take a master's degree to be saved. It doesn't take a doctorate. It doesn't take seminary. It doesn't take that to preach the gospel. But all of those degrees can't make you accept the truth. You see, because the gospel must be accepted, and this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus knew inside of himself that they were grumbling, and he said, Do you take offense at this? 
then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where you, He was before? I want to pause at verse 62. It's, it's difficult. This is, this is a difficult phrase. What if you were to see the Son of God ascending? The Son of Man ascending to where He was before. This is difficult. What is He making reference to? Some say that He's making reference to His ascension after His death. What if you see Me ascend? In other words, He's saying, you're going to see Me ascend. And then, if you struggle over these things, how much more will you struggle then to understand what's going on? Some believe He's speaking about His crucifixion, the fact that He would ascend the cross. And His death is what they're struggling to understand. If you struggle over My teachings, how will you ever accept My death? That's what some believe He's saying. Others would say that Christ is offering them the option of withdrawing the plan of salvation. In, in a sense, what he's saying is, so what, you struggle with these things? So what if I take them back? What if I rewind time and take the redemption plan back? Then what is the question? You don't, you don't like what I'm telling you? You say it's hard to understand, it's hard to accept. Okay, what if I take it away? Then how will you be saved? This is the way I like to see this phrase, I think, I think that this is the right way to see it. That what Jesus is saying is, as hard as it is to accept, if you don't have this, you have no salvation. If I take it away, you have no hope. Better to have a hard time accepting than to have nothing to accept. Okay? And so we look at this passage and we say, it's not difficult mentally to understand it is hard to accept in our hearts but it's the best we have it's all we have jesus is saying there's no plan b jesus refuses to offer a plan b he refuses to give them a compromise oh you don't like the fact that i'm the son of god from eternity come down into the flesh offered for sin you don't like that plan okay i'll give you another plan maybe you'll like it better jesus doesn't do that but these people are going to die. And they're going to face eternity without Him. And they're going to face hell. And He's a loving God. Why not give them another way? Because there is no other way. There's no plan B. There's no backup. This is it. And look, this will put it in perspective for you. These are not His enemies that He's talking to. These are His disciples. It's not just hard for the world. It's hard for the people who call themselves disciples, to accept the gospel. I would dare to say that a lot of people in here are still struggling with the gospel. I struggle with it. I struggle with it. There's days where I wake up and I think, how, how is this true? How can it be that I'm a son of God, an heir to the kingdom? How is that true? I struggle with the gospel. See, the disciples struggle with the gospel. It's not, it's not easy to accept. It's very difficult. These are His followers, not the Jews, that are struggling. His disciples who are grumbling. So what? The gospel must be preached. And it must be preached in the power of the Spirit. The application of today's message is we must preach the gospel relying on the Spirit of God to save men. 
It is not our responsibility to save people. But it is our responsibility to preach the gospel. Why are people not being saved at Grace Fellowship? We're not preaching the gospel. The truth is that we like to sit around pride ourselves on being right. Being right's not enough. Being right doesn't help your neighbor. It doesn't reach the waitress that waits your table this afternoon when you go to lunch. It doesn't reach your grandfather or your father. Being right is not enough. You must preach the right gospel and trust the Holy Spirit to save those whom God calls to Christ. Trust Him. It's an, I, I want to say what I've come... I have had to repent this week of not trusting God to save souls. Because I really believe sometimes we don't share the gospel because we don't believe it will do anything. They won't believe. What good will it do? That's a lack of belief. It's a lack of belief. We need to repent. We need to preach the gospel, not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday. We need to preach the gospel daily. The Spirit brings people to salvation. He says that clearly in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. You can't will yourself to be saved. The Spirit must grant you life. You can't will yourself to be born again. You must rely on the Spirit to bring you life. The Spirit saves. The Gospel must be preached though. See, because if we stopped there, we'd say, well, the Spirit's going to grant life to whoever He grants life to, so they're going to get saved. We don't have any responsibility. Look what Jesus says. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Spirit gives life. And the words which I'm speaking to you are spirit and life. So therefore, church, if we are to see a great harvest of souls in our day, we must speak the words of spirit and life. The Spirit will save them, but we must speak the Word. We must. It's it's imperative. It's a command. Romans 10, that great and famous passage, which we won't read for time's sake, is very clear that God not only ordained the end, but He He ordained the means by which the end would come. How will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear? Unless they preach, and how will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are those, the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. Right? For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You say, nobody at my workplace is getting saved. God must just not be doing anything here. Okay? But are you opening your mouth and speaking the words of life to them and the words of the Spirit? Nobody in my neighborhood's getting saved. They must already all be saved. Probably not. 
Maybe they're not getting saved because you haven't walked across the street yet. Look them in the eye and say, without Christ, you face eternity in hell. And I don't want that for you. Let me tell you how you might be saved. My granddad, he's not saved. And I prayed, but he's not saved. Have you preached the gospel to him? Well, it depends on the Spirit. Yes. It does. Let me explain it this way. When you take aim at the target, whoever that target is, your boss, your co-worker, your neighbor, your family member, you take aim at them in prayer. You say, Father, that's the man, that's the woman, that's the child. I will share the gospel with them today. You take aim at them in prayer. Oh God, please be merciful and save them. Soften their heart that they might understand and accept your gospel and be saved. You're taking aim at them. You haven't fired the shot yet. Then in faith, you fire the shot of the gospel by opening the mouth and saying the gospel to them. The shot is fired. And now the Spirit grabs that bullet and inserts it where it belongs, in the heart. And He does that 100% of the time. You say, well, they don't get saved 100% of the time. That's right. But the gospel shot out by the mouth of a believer is taken by the Spirit of God in faith and placed in that heart. And either they will accept it or reject it. The gospel demands a decision. The gospel demands you're either for Christ or against Christ. So you are doing the work of the gospel whether they're saved or lost when you walk away. Could it be that we're not reaping a harvest because we're not planting seeds? Could it be that we're not catching a great catch of fish because we're not spreading bread on the water? Could it be that we're losing individually as Christians the battle of the gospel fight because we haven't pulled our sword? I think so. And it starts with me. And it continues to you. At the end of this great message preached by Christ, we could add the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And just above that, listen to the words that he said. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We've been saved by this foolish message and now we're preaching this foolish message in trust that God will save whom He will save and He will gain all the glory. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. I will die on the cross. It's the only plan of redemption. If you won't have this plan, there is no other plan. 
The Spirit grants life, and my words are both Spirit and life. So will we, as we leave, as we close, will we be the messengers, the vessels of preaching this gospel? I can't answer that for you. I can for me. And though I share the gospel, I've committed in 2008 to share the gospel weekly. I don't mind telling you. You can hold me accountable. My plan is to share the gospel no less than three times a week. It's aggressive, I know. But it's not enough. Because there's lost people at my doorstep. Will you commit to share the gospel once a month? Once a week? Maybe you want to be more aggressive, five, six, eight times a week. I know this. God will save God will call me into himself when the gospel's preached and he will save people. Let's end in a word of prayer. Father, we ask that by the Spirit you take these words, plant them in the life of the believers. And give us the evidence of that planting through fruit in this week to come. And the life of the one who is not a believer this morning, I ask that you take these same words and plant them in the heart. Grant them to accept the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, without compromise. It's in His holy name we pray. Amen. I just want to remind you.